All right, as I said, open your Bibles to Psalm 26. That's where we're going to be this morning. Psalm 26. Join with me as we read it. It says this, Of David, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep away Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me, and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. Let's pray over the reading of our word. This morning, Heavenly Father, we know that this text before us has its challenges and its difficulties, and I pray that you would, by your Spirit, help us to overcome those challenges, that we may take this word that you have given to us and apply it to our lives, that each and every person in this room might have hearts that are open to hear from you this morning. I pray that you would speak in place of me through your word, that everything I say, would be illuminating the text that is in front of us, that through it we might be, tra- be changed, having encountered you through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the Psalms, as we've probably seen over the last few weeks, we take a little break during the summer and we just do 10 Psalms. We normally are in, we've been in Matthew for some time. We take that little break to just do a few Psalms. We've seen probably over the last few weeks, the Psalms can be really difficult at times to understand. And there's a reason for that. They are ancient Hebrew poetry. That's part of the reason why it's really hard to break down the Psalms and talk about them. Ancient, strike one. Hebrew, strike two. Poetry, strike three. How many of us are just edified by English poetry from time to time at home? You read it a lot, do you? Probably not. So it's not familiar to us. There's, there's lots of imagery, and there's language, and kind of flowery talk sometimes that can be really difficult for us to parse through. And we read some of these things, and it's often really difficult to interpret. And on top of that, we sometimes get absolutely no context for the psalm. Like this one, Psalm 26. It just says, of David. That's it. Nothing else just of David. That's all the context we get. We don't get situations in his life or a background of some sort that might like help us understand the text. We can only assume those things as we come in to read this text. And I, I, say, that, I say something like that every week because I think it helps to just remind us all what we're reading, first of all. Second, if there's any newcomers, to kind of bring you into the Psalms and help you understand, it's hard for us to understand this too. All right, it's not just difficult for you. This psalm is is not only, though, remember, 
about David's situations. That's probably the reason why there's not a whole lot of context here. It's not just about David's life and the situation David is in. This psalm is meant to be sung by a congregation of people. And that congregation of people, he is assuming, will come together, read and sing this psalm, and actually be able to relate to it in some way. And I hope we're going to see that this morning. This particular psalm has an interesting kind of pattern to it, a flow to it as you go through. The first three verses, verses 1 to 3, and the last two verses, verses 11 and 12, are parallels. They say essentially the same kinds of things. The integrity of David is on display. Walking in the steadfast love of the Lord is on display. His clean conscience is on display. That kind of thing. In both of those, what we're going to call strophes. That's what they're called in poetry. Strophes. Those little paragraphs of poetry. Those first paragraph, verses 1 to 3, and, this, and the last one, verses 11 to 12, are really parallel. They're saying the same kinds of things. The next two verses, verses 4 to 5, the next strophe there, 4 to 5, and the second to last strophe, verses 9 to 10, are also parallel. They're dealing with the wicked and the sinners, the people that he wants to distance himself from. Now, when a poem begins to unveil itself like that, the fancy word for that, are you ready for it? It's called a chiasm. All right? I know you don't care about that term, and I don't really care if you remember that term. I just want you to know that I know it. Um, I'm just kidding. When, it's, when it unveils itself like that, what it means is the middle strophe is really driving at the point that David is getting at in the psalm. And I hope that is the driving point that we're going to see this morning. So first, I want to call your attention to that pattern to explain why the point is in the middle of the psalm and not at the beginning or perhaps even the end. And then second, I want it to highlight for us what we really want to understand this morning and the question that we really want to wrestle with this morning, which is, what kind of relationship is the Lord calling you to? What kind of relationship with Him is the Lord calling you to? Perhaps you've been going about your life as a Christian, for some time now you've been going to church and you've been doing all the things, all the things that you, you say Christians are supposed to do. You've been doing them all. You've been going to all the events. You've been doing all the Bible readings and the prayers and, and the going to the worship and the Sunday schools and the things like that. You've been doing all those things, but somehow you feel like at the end, is this it? Is that, is that really all? Is that all there is? Is it just this? Perhaps you might be thinking about your relationship with God in something of a transactional way. Something like a transactional sort of relationship. Well, very simply, I give Him what He wants. That is, I come to church, I go to Sunday school, I read the Bible, I pray. I do the things that He wants, and in return, He gives me the thing that I want. I get out of hell. Now, that may seem trite and trivial. I mean, you may think to yourself, well, I don't think that way. But I can promise you, if your life as a Christian 
is really relegated to Sunday morning, you are thinking about your relationship with the Lord in a transactional sort of way. If the most of your spiritual life and your thought about the Lord happens on Sunday morning and rarely throughout the rest of the week, you are thinking about your life in a transactional sort of way. Well, I'm doing the things that He requires of me. Now I get the thing that He has promised me. Well, when that is the case, the language that David uses in a psalm like this, O oh Lord, I love the habitation of Your house and the place where Your glory dwells. When you read that, it's going to sound like a foreign language to you. What does that mean? I don't understand what David is talking about there. I've never felt that before. What in the world is he talking about? That's, a, that's an emotion that is foreign to me. And perhaps it feels like David is speaking to emotions about God that you have never experienced before. And just absolutely cannot relate to. So then... What if you moved beyond that sort of transactional relationship? What if you moved into a deep and abiding fellowship with the Lord forever? What if instead of reading the words of the psalmist, or perhaps even the other biblical writers, and it feeling like a foreign language to you, what if instead of that you might be able to read the Bible and relate completely to the feelings that you see expressed there? What if you could walk through life with a clear conscience? Wouldn't that be great? What if you could walk through life with a clear conscience? What if you could have assurance of eternity? What if I told you the Lord is calling each and every one of His people into a deep and abiding. That means intimate and ongoing. Deep and abiding. Intimate, deep, intimate, abiding. That means it's ongoing. It lasts forever. A deep and abiding relationship with Him. What if I told you that is what the Lord desires with you? But then we would have to ask, well, what's required to have that kind of relationship? Well, the first thing David highlights here is that fellowship with the Lord requires an ongoing examination of the heart. It requires an ongoing examination of the heart. David says right out of the gate, I have trusted the Lord, trusted in the Lord without wavering. You feel like that's you? We read that at the, at the dinner table this week. Every one of the kids started talking before I could even finish the psalm. And all of them were asking the same question. How is that possible? How can David say that about himself? That he has trusted in the Lord without wavering? And I think some of us might be inclined to ask the same thing. When we read that psalm, we're going, wait a second. David has sins of plenty and egregious ones at that. The Bible is not shy about David as king. There's no question. 
that the biblical writers love David and want you to see the beauty of God's man being put on the throne there in the Old Testament. David, there's no question about that. But the biblical writers are also unabashed and unashamed that David had egregious sins, like stealing a man's wife and killing her husband. That's pretty bad, right? I think we would all agree with that. There's sins that he's committed that many of us have never even thought about. How can he say he's trusted in the Lord without wavering? There's some evidence that he doesn't mean it quite like that. Look at verse 11, for instance, in 26. Redeem me and be gracious to me. Well, a person who is sin-free, sinless, you might say, doesn't need redemption and graciousness. Redemption from what? Graciousness for what? Well, last Sunday, we read in Psalm 25, if you want to back up to the previous psalm in also verse 11, there in 25, he says, For your namesake, this is David speaking again, For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Now, how could someone who has sinned so grievously as David and who has asked for forgiveness in the Psalms so much as David possibly be serious when he says, I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. This can also make the psalm feel unreachable for you. You read it and go, well, I can't relate to where David is at. We might read it and think, well, that's not me. I've certainly wavered. It seems obvious that David has a particular issue in mind for which he's being falsely accused. It's a particular situation in David's mind that has arisen for which he's falsely accused. He's not speaking about his whole life. He's speaking about a particular issue. And he's saying here, my conscience in this matter is clean. I haven't done the thing that I'm being accused of. Even the opening word here, he says, vindicate, which is sometimes translated judge. And it's that time where you would appeal to a third party to, to judge in the matter. Judge me, try me, look at my heart, settle this dispute. But look at what David is asking for in verse 2. He says, prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. He's asking here for the Lord to verify his claims of innocence. I'm innocent, but I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to look at my heart and you to tell me, am I innocent? Prove it. Tell me if I'm right or wrong. You be the judge. Search my heart and see if I've intended wrong in this situation. But keep in mind that this psalm is not just meant to be sung by David. It's meant to be sung by us too. So he's demonstrating here the posture of a person who is in the kingdom of God. Someone who wants God to search his heart and his mind and try him and see if there is any grievous way in him. He's seeking it from the Lord. Now this sounds eerily similar to a psalm David is going to write much later in the Psalter, of Psalm 139, starting in verse 23, where he says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So David is asking God to put his heart and his mind on trial. The things that I've thought, the things that I've desired, see if there's any waywardness to any of them, and put them on trial. 
But then if you look down at the end of this psalm in verse 11, where there is some parallel to verses 1 through 3, he says this, But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me and be gracious to me. So he's talking about the future now. He's not just asking the Lord to look at the past. He's now asking the Lord to help him in the future continue to walk in integrity as the Lord redeems him and is gracious to him in the future. So it's not just about the past that he's asking for examination. He's asking for ongoing examination of his heart for all time in the future. See, living in this space right here, living in that space of ongoing examination is actually, as it turns out, pivotal to fellowship with God. In fact, asking the Lord to continually examine every inch of your thoughts and your motives is where you as a Christian want to live. Because there can be no true fellowship with the Lord without permission for Him to openly examine every square inch of your heart and your mind. Analyzing every intention, every motive, and every thought. There is no relationship with the Lord with that, without that. Following the Lord means that is part of the deal. David's desires here give us a snapshot into the kinds of desires that we should have if we want a deep and abiding relationship with the Lord. The one where He is able to search our heart and our mind and identify every crooked way that lies deep within. Can you imagine if you just took inventory of every wayward thought? Of every sinful thought. How many would that be? Exactly. But too many to count. David is asking for God to test his heart, test his mind. But the reason is because he believes that the Lord is steadfast in his love towards David. That's the reason why he's asking God to be the judge. That's the reason he's coming before him and he's saying, let you be the one. You search my heart. You search my mind. Do you know why? Because in the Lord, he's going to find someone who is abounding in steadfast love and is gracious and kind. He says in verse 3, For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I will walk in your faithfulness. So he's transitioned from walking in his own integrity to now understanding, I'm walking in, in the Lord's faithfulness. I'm going to stand before him. I'm going to confess my sins to him. I'm going to entrust my conscience, my heart, my mind. I'm going to trust them all to him because I know that he is steadfast in his love toward me. And then if he does find any crooked way, which he's bound to do, I trust that he's going to forgive me for it. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, as we read just a minute ago. Sunday morning should be for us, if nothing else, an open invitation from us to the Lord as if He needed one to search our minds and our hearts 
and to bring to mind any sin that we have been previously ignorant of. If nothing else, it should be that. That prayer of confession in the middle of our service. We pause the service. We read from the Scriptures. We pray a prayer of confession, which I realize is not something frequently done in most churches today, though it used to be unanimous in years prior. I realize that. It's a bit different. Pausing the service, taking a moment to just be completely silent in reflection and prayer. But in that time, we're encouraged to confess our sins, some of which we may have never considered before. Sometimes we read scriptures that bring to mind sins or that bring out sins that you might never even have thought of before. And that's okay. Because sometimes there are things that are brought to mind through the scriptures that we think, oh, you know what? I do that all the time and I didn't even realize I did that. That's its purpose. But listen, our gathering together, our taking of the Lord's Supper, as we did last week and as we do the last Sunday of every month, our baptism that we celebrate from time to time in the baptistry behind me, it is an open invitation, not just for the Lord to search our minds and our hearts, but for all the people around you to search your life. That's what that is. When we take of the Lord's Supper, we're saying together, we're all in this together. We all believe the same things. We are standing here taking of the Lord's Supper because we all need the grace and mercy and blood of Christ. And because of that, I am opening my life to any one of you and you the same. To analyze it, to search it, and to point out the things that you see. That's part of church membership. But if it stopped there, if it just stopped at the analyzing of sin and the searching of motives and all those kinds of, of things, then this would be a pretty miserable gathering. Following a confession, what are we reminded of? But the fact that God, through Christ alone, has pardoned you for sin. That the purpose of Christ is for Him to give to you pardon. That psalm that we read earlier is a promise that Christ is coming to give to you a pardon for sin. So the purpose of God searching our hearts is not just to make you feel bad. That's not His purpose. Its purpose is so that we can celebrate the fact that we are drawn here as an assembly and we are forgiven. Notice that David says there at the very end of the psalm that he stands on level ground in the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. He's talking about in the fellowship of other believers. That he's standing there with other redeemed people who are also celebrating the forgiveness that they have in Christ. That's its purpose. It requires a searching of the heart and mind. Fellowship with the Lord also requires holy relationships. It requires holy relationships. Now, that may seem a little strange. It may seem like a, a weird jog to the left on the pattern of these points here that David makes, but look at where he takes it in verse 4. 
I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Now, David recognizes that when it comes, and he even asks in verse 9 to not be swept away with the sinners. He brings them up again. I don't want to be swept away with them. I'm not, I don't keep their counsel. I don't walk in their ways. When it comes to fellowship with the Lord, the people that you are around play a key role. A vital part. In fact, the book of Psalms, you'll remember, Psalm 1 and 2 opens with something very similar to this. It's particularly Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I want you to notice both in Psalm 1 and in Psalm 26 just how important relationships are with, in, in regards to your fellowship with God. How important are relationships with other people, other believers? See, for your relationship with the Lord to grow and to live in a space where your heart and your mind are constantly under surveillance, the best of friends that are in your inner circle, that are giving you advice and that are counseling you from time to time, cannot be against this way of life. In fact, they have to agree with this way of life. That doesn't mean that there can't be any interaction whatsoever with people who disagree. Of course, that's not what he's saying. What he's talking about is those that he consorts with, those that he sits in counsel with, those who give him advice, those who speak into his life. Who gives you advice? Who do you go to when trying situations come up? Who is permitted to speak into your life in those times? David, he says, has swept away all those people who would give him advice contrary to the Word of God. The counsel that they give, it turns out, has nothing to do with deepening your relationship with the Lord. Instead, they're going to say things like, you be you, you only live once, live your best life now, and things like that. And living your best life now was actually written by a so-called pastor. Their titles don't mean that they're worthy of counsel, as it turns out. We haven't even begun to take a full inventory of the damage done by COVID. I don't think we'll see that as a church, not a, a local church, but also a global church and an American church. I don't think we have fully investigated the effects that COVID-19 has really had on the church. It'll probably take a while to see those full effects. I have pastor friends who are in various different states, in many different cities, in churches of various size in relation to ours, some smaller and some much bigger. And if our little cohort is any indication, then 
the, the church is in for a long haul over the next few years. If our relationships with fellow believers are so important to our fellowship with the Lord and our deepening relationship with the Lord, then what happens when we lock ourselves in our room for 14 months? What do you think happens to our fellowship with the Lord? Some are leaving the faith entirely. We're seeing that. I've personally seen that a number of times, which is a comparatively rare thing for me to see and experience with people, but I've seen it a number of times even in just the last few months. I suspect there's more to come. Many are leaving their churches and just going to other churches, which obviously means that they are leaving the relationships of the Christians that know them best, that have permission to speak into their lives and point out the error of their ways. They're leaving those relationships, severing them altogether, and going down the road. Some have opted simply to just stay at home and watch church online, maybe. Which calling that church, that's like giving the Michelin Award to Chef Boyardee. It just doesn't work. That's not church. But don't be surprised that over the years, over the last 20, 30, maybe even more years, there has been a progressive shallowing of the meaning of church membership. What does it actually mean to join with a body? A local congregation. That has been so shallowed so that it's just a commodity there for me to just receive whatever blessing it might give, but not for me to give a single thing. Well, don't be surprised if our fellowships with one another really are that important for the growing increase of our fellowship with the Lord. That as our association with the local church is distant, that our relationship with the Lord also becomes really shallow. Don't be surprised that the two are linked together intimately. Your relationship with others actually matters. It counts. But even in the event that you stay in the faith, in the event that you stay with your church, in the event that you actually decide to attend in person, which here you have no other choice, for a reason. Who is around you that is actually pushing into your life that actually has permission to ask you really hard questions? Who is the person who sits down with you and puts your friendship on the line to actually be honest with you? You realize that comes at great risk when they do that, when they sit down with you and they tell you very uncomfortable truths. You realize that comes at great risk to the friendship and someone who is willing to do that because they see sin in your life is worth keeping around. Who is around you that's able to push deeper into those things? Those kinds of relationships are forged in the local church. 
They're forged in small groups, which we have, which I would encourage you to take part. we got two opening here pretty soon. One included at my house. Another at Doug and Becky's, Doug and Becky Ferris and Richard and Vicki Thomason, their house. They're opening soon. You can actually take that little contact card on the back of your pew and you can check. I am interested. Put your name down there. We'll contact you. We'll invite you when those small groups are open. They're formed here on Sunday morning. Zero of those relationships are forged on your couch. Not one. On your couch, you can receive, but you cannot give back. That is why it's not a church. Fellowship with the Lord requires an ongoing examination of the heart. Fellowship with the Lord requires holy relationships. But at the base of it, what are we really striving for? Fellowship with the Lord is delight in Him. Fellowship with the Lord is delight in Him. David says in verse 6, I wash my hands in, the in, in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. There, David's obviously talking about worship that goes on at the tabernacle as he's kind of outlining it here and that would go on at the temple much later. But there, there is a routine that the priests and the elders in, the, in cities would actually do anytime they found a dead body. Uh, it's taking a really weird turn. I, I realize that. Just bear with me here for just a second. Anytime they would find a dead body, there was a, a routine that they would actually go through that is prescribed by law where they would actually sacrifice a heifer and there over the dead body and over the heifer, they would wash their hands of this dead person and they would say out loud, our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt would be atoned for. Now, no doubt, David is, is doing that here. He, think, he thinks he's innocent on charges. But he's also putting it in temple language, in, in tabernacle language, where everybody would gather around the, the, the altar and celebrate the forgiveness that they have here. Remember the crucifixion of Jesus? The story of the crucifixion? Pontius Pilate actually attempts to do this same thing, where he washes his hands of the blood of Jesus, which obviously he cannot do. But here David is relishing in the fact that, he, that, that not only is he not guilty, but that he is currently in the tabernacle around the altar, in the only place where his sin or his innocence is fully known. His enemies, who are accusing him of this sin, they can't see inside his heart. They can't see inside his mind. They don't know if he's actually intended this, whatever, this sin. But he is in the one place in the temple before the one judge who can actually see into the matter. And that, that judge has declared him not guilty on all charges. Do you understand? He is in the one place where blood atonement for sin is made. So David is free, then he says, to celebrate around the altar and to sing praises to the Lord for what he's done because God alone can see the intentions of my heart and where there is crooked intentions, he has given me atonement and he holds me guiltless where enemies will continue to hold me guilty. 
But the Lord will hold me guiltless because of his steadfast love. So he can sing then as he's dancing around the altar like he does in verse 8. I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. He says there, the place where David wants to stay continually is where? Right there in the presence of God because there's no question about his guilt or innocence. He's fully known. His heart is continually searched. His conscience is perpetually clean there. He is forever in the glory of the Lord. Now, can you imagine for just a second, let, just go back B.C. days, before Christ. Just put yourself in the shoes of a Jew, all right? You're going to the temple on the Day of Atonement. You've carried guilt and and burdens of sin for the entire year. And here you're coming to have atonement offered for those sins. Can you imagine what kind of rejoicing, how it would feel on that day to know that the sins of yesteryear are wiped clean? What would that feel like? What kind of relief of a burden would that feel like for you? Christians, do you realize that you are invited to perpetually live in the Day of Atonement? That is the purpose. You are invited to live there. You don't have to go home. You can live there in the Day of Atonement. It goes with you. It doesn't go with the Jews in the Old Testament. It goes with you in the Day of Christ. Atonement for all our sins has been provided by God through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that, we, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So many have come to Christ. They've realized their great need for salvation. They've professed faith in Christ truly. But they live in this perpetual state of guilt because they've returned to their sins again. And so they carry around this burden of sin thinking, well, God has surely had it with me now. I'm not living very righteously at the moment. I want you to listen to me for just, just one second. If you haven't been up to this point, tune in now, all right? You promise? All the righteousness God required for eternal life, He provided in Christ. 100% of it. There's not a single iota of righteousness that is left to you to push it over the edge. Yeah, thank God. He provided it all in Jesus. It's there. It's provided for you. And in this free gift of God, in the salvation of Jesus, batteries are included, and no assembly is required. Amen, hallelujah, if you've ever put together toys on Christmas Eve. What's a quadruple A battery? I've never even heard of it. The stores are closed, it's too late to go get one now. Right? Amen, dads? I'm saying, speak up. Are we striving towards obedience? Yes. 
Are we trying to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit within us? Absolutely. We're striving towards that every day. But there are Christian perfectionists that carry around this immense burden that they have perpetually upset the Lord because they're sinful. Well, I have news for you. We're all sinful. Every single one of us. Well, if you return to your sins, you lose your salvation, well then we, who would have it? It would be the height of arrogance. As one pastor has said, to think that you can lose your salvation, but that you haven't yet. Of course we would have. I'd have lost it yesterday, and today, and tomorrow. But no days before that, and no days after. <laughs> the prayer of confession, as I said here on Sunday morning, isn't meant to lull us into a sad slumber. It's meant to lead us to rejoicing that we have a Savior who has freed us from those sins. And the scriptural assurance of pardon is meant to move us to rejoicing. As Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are, who are in Christ Jesus. Well, what does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, but what about in the Greek? What does it mean in there? Are you ready for this? I've taught you all Greek. You know how to translate it. How would you translate it? There is, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a strange thing for Paul to say if what he meant was the exact opposite of that. There's tons of condemnation for you, even though you're in Christ Jesus, because you dummy, you messed up again. That's ridiculous. The reason that he says that is because, are you ready for it? There is, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All your sins were in the future when Christ died. So he knew them all. There was none to hide. Nowhere to hide, actually. And the Holy Spirit that dwells within you is there to convict you of sin, not to allow you to wallow in self-pity, but so that you might realize evermore your need for Christ. So then in the middle of that, you come back to Jesus all the more. And you say, oh, thank the Lord that I have Jesus. See, when analysis of your heart and your mind and your thoughts and your motivations are done continually, and when friends are around you to continually point to you all these sins that might be on the surface that you might never have seen, and reminding you of the importance of deepening your fellowship with the Lord. The result should not be wallowing in self-pity. The result should be a constant reminder of what an amazing gift God has given to you in the person of Jesus Christ. And what I find is those who have the deepest relationship with the Lord, those who are older than me, wiser than me, and that when I look at them, I'm envious of the relationship they have with the Lord. Those people I find have had the most confrontation with their own sin. They're the most merciful because they've, they've realized the mercy that they've been shown. They're the most gracious because they realize the grace that they've been shown. The self-righteous are often mean 
and critical and backbiting and gossipy and slanderous. But those who have really seen their sin for what it is, who have routinely counted it, they tend to be the ones whose relationship with the Lord I'm the most envious of. It's there that we want to live. Because it's only there that we actually have freedom. It's only there that we actually have mercy and kindness as we walk steadfastly in His love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for us as a people, as a manual Baptist church, I pray for us. I pray that you would break our hearts with our own sin. Precisely so that you can assure us of the mercy and grace that you have shown to us in Christ. I I pray for our fellowship with you. That it would grow ever deeper as we realize just what we have in Christ. That there we may realize what David is saying is is true. It's so great to dwell in your house. That better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. May that language move from foreign to familiar to us. That we might grow in our understanding of just what it means to be included in your family. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.